Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's episode is with Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro. Super, super excited for this one, guys. Uh, This is a podcast that I was really looking forward to doing because she is one of the, in my opinion, she is the most transparent person inside the gut health realm, the gut health field, the gut health space, if you will. Um, There's a lot of people who talk about gut health. I talk about gut health. A lot of nutrition coaches talk about gut health, but there aren't as many specialists in gut health that are just focused on that one specific thing that are truly invested in the educational side of it all. And what I mean by that is really looking at the user or the client or the individual's best interests and not worrying about marketing, not worrying about what's going to sell best, um, and really, again, just focusing on the education. That's something we really dive into with this. Food sensitivity tests, blood tests, hormone tests, gut health tests, uh, uh, bacteria tests, microbiome, probiotics, digestive enzymes, like all these different things that are very hyped up and sold really well on the market because they are doubling down on the idea of gut health being very sellable. Now, that is not me saying that gut health is not important. It's obviously very important. That's why she is on this show. That's why I requested to interview her. And that's why she is spending her life working on bettering the field and specifically the niche population of gut health inside of our field. Um, So it's a very important thing. However, it is a very sellable thing. It's just like protein. Protein is very sellable. It's also very important. We need it. But now you see things like Snickers bars with added protein. Fiber was the same thing. We really need it. And all of a sudden, Kellogg's got a hold of this. And now Fiber One and fiber-based sugar cereals are everywhere. Um, And those are just two small examples. Kombucha or probiotics are another one, which we dive into today. And you can see kombucha and probiotics in or on every label you see at Costco or Safeway or your local grocery store. But again, I'm kind of ranting and rambling at this point. But it is something that fires me up because I am so passionate about nutrition that when I see things that are super important get twisted and taken into the hands of the wrong people to be marketed and sellable, it does frustrate me and it makes me really want to seek out individuals who are all about educating people to understand what is actually important, what is actually applicable to them and use it for the better, use it for better health, use it for longevity, use it for better physique development. Um, And that's what Dr. Gabriella Fandaro does. And I'm really excited for her to come on the show, debunk some myths, tell it how it is and give you guys some straight shot education so you can really learn a lot from this podcast today. Guys, remember the greatest way for me to be able to grow this podcast and reach more individuals is actually with your help. So if you can do me two huge favors, the first one being head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. And the second one being taking a screenshot of this show, posting on your story and tagging myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Gabriella at VitaminPHD on Instagram. Tag us both in the story. We want to see who's listening. We want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well. All right, without any further ado, let's get right into this podcast with the one and only 
Dr. Gabriella Fandaro. All right, Gabriella, as I was just telling you off air, I'm really excited about this podcast because the way you approach the gut in general is not only informative, but very realistic. Um, and there's been a few times where you've kind of busted myths and I'm really excited to do that with you today and bring some real good applicable information to the people that's backed by science. Um, and I think you're literally the perfect person to do this with, which is why you're the first person I reached out to when I decided we need to do a gut specific podcast, um, which I can't imagine how many DMS and how many questions you get about this in general, but I get questions to coach all the time. Um, and, and we're going to get into this exact idea soon, but a lot of times I feel like I'm just constantly going back to the fact of like, Hey, eliminate some stuff and bring it back in. Like, don't go to all this crazy shit. So I'm really excited to kind of go through all those crazy things and kind of chop them away and discuss what's, what's good for you. What is just marketing or media hype. Um, but before we do, um, I'm getting ahead of myself cause I'm excited about these things. Um, <laughs> how did you get into gut health in general? Like how did that start for you? And I guess for the listeners who don't know who you are, a brief who you are would be small. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for that introduction. Um, so I'm Dr. Gabrielle Fondero. I actually um, did my PhD in the field of the gut microbiome sort of tangentially. So um, my research focused on the uh, potential protective effects of probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding. Um, the, the logic there is that we have linked um, uh, the development of obesity and obesity-related metabolic dysfunction um, to the gut microbiome. And so um, there was a, a, a theory that perhaps if we modulated the microbiome in some way, that we could potentially protect against some of the uh, metabolic dysregulation that occurs when an individual is eating a habitually high-fat diet and or has obesity. Um, so that was sort of, uh, it was almost an accident. It was a happy accident that <laughs> I got into that field. I started in that lab looking actually at uh, the relationship between a high fat diet and muscle wasting or cachexia. And unfortunately, um, I probably people have experienced this before with group work. Sometimes, you know, your group members let you down a little bit. <laughs> and uh <laughs> And in that case, we had some samples that were not properly stored. And so I went in one day to, you know, run some, some RNA stuff. And unfortunately, all the labels had been washed off. So literally, there was just like nothing usable from that study. And so the probiotic study that was my side project, my side hustle, um, became my dissertation work. And uh, that was back, you know, when, when this field was really just emerging. Um, and people didn't really see, I think, the importance and the reach of the microbiome in human health and disease. And it's absolutely taken off. Uh, but I didn't really do anything with that when I started teaching. So I was very focused on um, becoming a professor. I didn't really want to continue doing a lot of research. I just wanted to teach. And so I went, um, I was offered a professorship before I defended and then went right from PhD to um, academia, and I taught in exercise science for four years. I did sport nutrition, anatomy, and physiology, and um, you know, kind of just friends and family would still ask me questions about probiotics, and that was really like the extent to which I was involved in the field for several years. Um, when I started coaching with Renaissance Periodization, which is uh, who I am now, hi, RP coach, <laughs> and also vitamin PhD nutrition coach. Um, so I started with them my last year that I was teaching and was working just, just with a small number of clients doing coaching there. 
and um, had the opportunity then to go full-time with RP. And we really were able to um, kind of get back to my roots at that point because gut health was just completely starting to blow up and, and sort of go off the rails a little bit because it was such a new area. Um, it's sort of the Wild West. And, um, you know, there are, there are arguably very few practitioners, I think, who are taking this to, with a, an evidence-based um, approach. And when I say evidence-based, I want to stress that I don't mean just using one research article to support an idea, but to look at the breadth and the depth and the quality of the evidence and uh, build recommendations based on that. Because we know that in any field, you can find one uh, randomized control trial that'll support pretty much anything. And I think it's important that we, we make the distinction that, that that's probably not the most evidence-based approach one could have. Um, and so, so that's where I am today. So it's been a year now full-time with RP. Um, I started doing my own consults as well uh, with my, my company, Vitamin PhD Nutrition, because I found that there was sort of a niche group of individuals who um, wanted to simultaneously sort of address their GI issues and and their weight management concerns. And it's really difficult to do those things at the same time. Um, quite often, you know, weight management um, uh, difficulties to some extent resolve as we uh, look at what's going on with the gut, but we can't necessarily say that, you know, you can heal or fix your gut and then you lose weight spontaneously, um, you know, because those words are sort of amorphous and we can get into what that means or doesn't mean later on. Um, so that's, that's where I am now. So, um, coaching with RP, coaching with vitamin PhD nutrition, and, and traveling a great deal, which is really wonderful to communicate about uh, the gut microbiome. I love it. There's a few things I want to pick apart and ask you about with that. But yeah. the first thing I want to start with is if you have, and this might be a very easy answer, it might turn into a tangent. So feel free to take this however, <laughs> however you want to. Um, rants are accepted here. But <laughs> Are there any things, uh, thing or things that you see in this space or in this world of the gut microbiome um, supplementation uh, protocols, diets, all these things that are coming out? And as you said, it's just gotten more and more popular. And I feel like more and more protocols and supplements are coming out that you think people should stay away from or that you can just clearly call bullshit on that you see a lot of people falling for. And, and I'm asking this just from a very practical standpoint of like not letting people fall into practices that are just going to waste time and money and, and possibly get them pretty frustrated, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the list of things that are not like that would be shorter right now. <laughs> um, yeah, because it really is. I mean, it's, it's just the Wild West out there. Um, so I would say in terms of the most expensive um, and therefore probably the most invasive and uh, unhelpful test would be um, food, the IgG food sensitivity test. They're several hundred dollars. They really just test for exposure to a food, not a sensitivity. Um, there is really no such thing as a sensitivity. We may have an intolerance due to an enzyme deficiency. We may have an allergy due to an immune response. A sensitivity is just a made up word that people can use to market these tests. And the IgG antibody is not one that we use to determine whether someone has an allergic response. Um, there may also be allergic responses that are not mediated by antibodies. So that one is probably at the top of my list for being really just not helpful in any way, extremely expensive, 
very damaging because then it causes a lot of fear and anxiety around foods and, and can really potentiate orthorexia. And I've seen that happen in clients. Um, next on the list, in terms of, it's, uh, of expense, not so much being harmful, but not really super helpful either, would be something like the GI MAP test or tests that um, sequence the genetic material of your fecal matter and let you know what microbes are present there. It's not really going to be able to you know, diagnose any diseases. Of course, there are some markers that we can look at in, in fecal matter um, that may indicate is amiss. Um, you know, if you have a, a medical practitioner doing that, but in terms of being able to look at what bacteria and archaea and things like that are, are existing in your gut, we can pretty much guess what that's going to look like based on your habitual diet um, to some extent. And I mean, it's, it's interesting for sure. It's cool to look at, but you cannot, even though they claim, you cannot then determine what foods you should eat based on the microbes present. It's a chicken egg thing, and really, where we kind of know the order that your diet is going to have a huge impact um, on the the diversity and what um, prominent uh, species of bacteria reside there. So, if, you know, per, perhaps you could say, "Oh, you have low levels of this beneficial bacteria, so eat these foods." Well, I could just look at your diet, and if you're not eating those, probably eat those foods because it's prudent things like fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So that's another one that's just sort of expensive and it's not really telling you anything useful. Um, certainly the things that I think people are starting to learn are harmful would be things like detoxes and cleanses that are going to usually cause diarrhea. They're not going to detox or cleanse anything. Um, your digestive tract is covered in, a, in multiple layers of muscle that contract regularly and move th things through. So you don't have like pounds of fecal matter just rotting in your digestive tract. Your kidneys and your liver are not like filters that you have to like clean out. <laughs> so, you know, like when you're in your dryer, you get the lift out. It's not like that. They uh, detoxify enzymatically. So those things can be certainly harmful um, and also expensive, just, you know, maybe not quite as expensive as some of the other things. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, that, that's probably, those are my big three that are at the top of the list of please don't spend your money on this. Um, it's, it's harmful to some extent. Other things that are probably not super expensive but still not super useful would be like supplementing with glutamine if you don't have an inflammatory bowel disease or um, collagen peptides. Um, this is one of my favorites. That's It's a really good example of um, people extrapolating from like a single randomized control trial uh, because they have one or two of these that have shown that, you know, adding collagen peptides of you know, specific types, there are different types of collagen too. Um, to cell culture caused an increase in tight junction protein. And people then think, oh, that means that it's going to heal slash fix your gut. Um, and, and so practitioners will use that, you know, oh, it's a randomized control trial. This means it's effective. So they're not as expensive. But again, it's just not something that, is, that has any evidence to support it. And, and mechanistically, it really just doesn't make any sense. Um, so that was a bit of a tangent. I might have more later, but those are the ones that come to mind now. I love it. No, there's actually a few on there that I wanted to touch on. So we'll just kind of go down the list. And the first one was the food sensitivity test. Um, can you explain uh, the thought process, which may not be correct, but the thought process of why people started popularizing these, why people started selling these tests um, and what they're not actually doing. And I think it, coming from somebody who I primarily work with people who are looking for aesthetic changes, we work on fat loss and muscle growth. And I get a lot of people that come to me and they have this fear of 
food. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the worst part of these things. Um, can you just explain that whole process and, and maybe give some more uh, details on why we don't need to necessarily believe these or go into these and, and we can kind of go towards a route of like what to actually do after that. But first explaining what that is. Yeah. So our bodies produce a number of different antibodies those antibodies can identify whether something might cause a disease or not. So if we want to look for uh, an allergy, we might we could use an IgE antibody test, but there are some allergies, there are some immune responses that are not IgE mediated. And so we wouldn't even use that test for that. We would actually have to use something like an oral tolerance test. So we can test for food allergies. Those are immune mediated. And that means that your immune system launches an attack, just like you have an infection of some sort. Um, You may also, as I mentioned, not have, you know, an IgE-mediated event, and that's usually going to be something that um, will cause intense gastric upset um, really rapidly after eating a food. You could have an intolerance, and as I mentioned earlier, that's where we have an enzyme deficiency. So something like lactose intolerance, so you're not producing the lactase enzyme to break down lactose, and that can cause GI upset. So the IgG food sensitivity test is measuring levels of a specific antibody that is used in in other um, ways by our immune system, but not in association with causing an allergy or any sort of real disruption. So IgG antibodies, um, they're sort of like, think of them like name tags or like barcodes. So it's, we've seen this food before, or we've seen this, this antigen before, and not necessarily that we need to mount an, uh, an attack against it. We actually recognize it. And you could actually look at that as more of a test of tolerance. So what usually happens is people, when they get an IgG food sensitivity test, they get a list of foods that they eat habitually because that's what it is. It's telling you you've eaten these foods before. What happens then is they think they have a sensitivity to these foods, and so they stop eating those foods. We know that if you have reduced food choice, you will spontaneously reduce food intake, and that can lead to caloric restriction. So it could be just by chance they've reduced their calories and they start to lose weight and then confuse correlation with causation, and they think that they removed a food they had a sensitivity to and began losing weight or they remove a food to which they did have some intolerance, or perhaps they reduce the overall fermentable fiber load in their diet and their GI symptoms resolve. And once again, they have correlated the resolution of those symptoms with having removed a food that they were sensitive to. So it just so happens that you know this is um, a coincidence, not that it was a, a causative thing. So realize that, you know, number one, that list is just a list of foods that you eat all the time. Number two, you're just eliminating by chance a food that may have caused some GI upset. Or number three, you may be just reducing your caloric intake, and that will lead to fat loss if your physical activity levels stay the same. The problem, though, is as you mentioned, people become really fearful about food, and then they start to feel anxious about it. They don't know what foods are safe for them. Um, and then that can lead to disordered eating. So I would say don't even waste any time or money on those tests. Um, I think unfortunately what happens is people who, who know better capitalize on people who just are not aware. Um, you know, it, and, and there's a lot of money to be made there. 
um, in taking advantage of people, unfortunately, and making them feel as though they're broken so that you can fix them. Um, so if you are having, you know, continuous gastric upset, then it certainly is worth looking into your diet, but you don't have to do one of those tests. There are free, um, you know, elimination processes that you could go through. Or if you see that your weight loss is stalled, um, I say, you know, go back to the basics and look at your energy expenditure, look at your energy intake, how closely you're tracking, what methods you're using to track. Um, and if you've been weight stable for a very long period of time, thermodynamics dictates that you're in energy balance. And that's, that sucks that it can be that difficult, but you know, weight loss is, it's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. I think like a few things on that. The first one being, it just speaks volumes to who you are because I was actually talking to uh, my fiance about this before we got on. I, I was saying it's very cool that you as a person who could probably legally do these things and take advantage <laughs> of this from a financial perspective is going the complete opposite route and just being a go-giver and saying like, here's this free information or get on a consult with me and I'll help you with your diet. Like, but you're not like you, you could legally go create a probiotic or do food sensitivity mm -hmm. tests and these things mm -hmm. and make all this money, but it's just not, the correct answer. Um, the other thing is, is I think the industry kind of goes in waves like this, right? Like now there's, it's like protein. Oh, protein's healthy. There's Snickers protein bars now. Well, <laughs> weird. Um, fiber was huge. And then all of a sudden fiber one came out and all these cereals, you know, and it's kind of like this with everything over time, um, which gets me to the point of, is this kind of the same ideology as uh, keto and carnivore and things like that? Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, I went keto and my digestion and gut health is mm -hmm. so much better. It's like, well, it's not carbs. It's a type of carb that you were eating that was causing you issues. Um, or like you said before, like carnivore, you're just eating way less calories because all you eat is meat and now you're losing weight. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that what you would say is like actually what's happening there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, there was... I, I, you know, I, I comment sometimes on Instagram on like other posts and um, one of my favorite questions to ask people, I do it in sort of a cheeky way, um, but they'll say, oh, I felt so much better after I fixed my gut and I just wonder and sometimes ask and don't usually receive a cool response, but <laughs> how did you know it was broken and then how did you know that you fixed it? Um, you know, we, we want, and I, I, I have to really look up the person who wrote this quote, because I've said it a few times now, and I'm not taking credit for it. Um, but I think it was food science babe who shared it, that the gut microbiome is the new conspiracy theory. It's a scapegoat now. Um, and you know, I, and I've looked at, I, I've seen these trends too. Um, I've been in the fitness industry now for about 13 years. Um, and it sort of seems that now hormones and gut health are sort of the, the old slow metabolism. Like people now know that slow metabolism isn't really a thing, but they still think it's gotta be something else. Um, because weight loss is just so damn hard. And like, it just seems like if you are feeling restricted that you should be losing weight. Um, and that's just not the case. You know, you can lose weight without feeling restricted to some extent, and you can feel restricted with, and still be in energy balance. Um, so yeah, I think that we're sort of misappropriating what's going on here in terms of, you know, what, what are, from what aspect are we really reaping benefits? And also thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate that because I, um, believe me, I, I, people have pointed out to me, you know, what I could be doing and how much more money I could be making if I were doing those things. Um, but I just wouldn't want to do that. I think no amount of money is worth, um, 
taking advantage of people and, and, you know, going about it in that way. I a hundred percent agree. And it really resonates with me just because like the way we run our company is we create so much free content. People are always asking like, why don't you sell this? Or why are you giving so much away for free? And I'm like, well, people need to learn this stuff before they pay to work with me because this stuff they can get for free. Like, let me just give it to them the right way. So um, I love that uh, so much. It, the next thing on my list was probiotics though. So going back to the topic, I had, <laughs> it's funny because I had on my list of things talk about myth busting was at the very end, but we jumped ahead right to the beginning. So we're just going to keep crushing these. Um, first right. one was food sensitivity tests, which I think we mm-hmm. just knocked out of the park. I think that's really helpful. Um, the second one was probiotics. And mm. I know you did some actual research on probiotics. So I'm definitely curious about um, what you learned in the process of actually doing research on them. And then also, what's the practicality of them for normal people? Is it a waste of money or is this something we should cycle in and out? Or is this, for a lot of people, it's just becoming a daily supplement. Right, right. You know, um, my view on probiotics has changed in the past year. Um, And so I think it's important that, you know, we do, you know, keep an open mind, but not so open that stuff falls out. So um, I have, you know, in response to more evidence, um, now we've got, you know, better meta-analyses coming out and higher quality studies, more invasive studies, um, and certainly more human studies that I think we can start to have a bit more confidence in probiotic supplementation um, in the right context. So still keeping in mind that probiotic supplementation is um, shown to be fairly effective for specific disease states, IBS, uh, so uh, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, and diarrhea would be really the big three, that if you're experiencing one of those, there's probably a probiotic supplement that um, may be effective for reducing your symptoms. Uh, Some promising research in, um, or, or intriguing research in you know, immunomodulation that may benefit um, recovery from a cold or upper respiratory tract infection. Uh, the rest of it in terms of looking at, you know, now people are looking at um, the, the effects on mood disorders, um, autism spectrum disorder. Of course, everyone wants to find a probiotic that will help them to lose weight. And the evidence in those areas is much weaker. Uh, there was a recent a systematic review that came out looking at mood disorders, and there was literally just a 50-50 split on whether or not probiotics were effective for individuals with um, depression, for example. Um, so, you know, keeping in mind that some of these things are so complex, some of these disease states are, are so multifaceted that it's not likely that we're going to see a benefit taking a daily supplement. And in fact, what's more effective are the non-probiotic interventions. And that's probably not too surprising. You know, when you start taking care of yourself and engaging in more self-care, that that leads to the resolution of a great many things, you know, mood disorders, sleep, weight management. Um, But that being said, you know, there there does look to be a role um, of probiotics in addressing GI distress. That's, that, that does seem to be pretty promising. So, um, but, but again, it's, strain, it's very strain specific. So when we look at the effects of probiotics, we can get down to the species level, um, but that's not even really specific enough. We have to get down to the strain level. So that's so specific. It's, um, I've used the analogy before of comparing dingoes to dogs. Um, you probably wouldn't want a pet dingo, but you'd be okay with a pet dog. <laughs> that's the difference when we're looking at strain specificity. Um, and so there are, you know, not all strains are going to be effective for all things, 
there are a couple uh, probiotics that seem to be effective for many things. Um, BSL-3, um, even though I don't have any you know, brand loyalty or anything like that, um, but that seems to be effective. And then S. boulardii, which is actually a yeast, not a probiotic. And I've mentioned these guys before. Um, uh, uh, and then some of the, you know, kind of well-known ones, some of the lactobacilli, the acidophilus and the rhamnosus also seem to be pretty effective. Um, but, you know, when people are taking them as a daily supplement, there's really no reason to do that. It's very expensive. And um, there's some research also that's showing that some individuals are actually resistant to probiotic enrichment. So the probiotics go in one end, out the other, uh, do nothing while they're in the middle. <laughs> so um, there's really no way to know if you're that type of person. It's just sort of you're, you're flipping a coin. You know, if you want to try and invest in the probiotic, you can. But again, I don't see a reason to do that if you're if you don't have any symptoms of anything and you're eating a nutritious diet and exercising and things like that. And that's the other point is that, you know, if you are eating, if you're taking a probiotic supplement and you are um, theoretically ingesting live microorganisms, they need food, too. And if your diet is bereft of microbe accessible carbs like uh, resistant starch and soluble fiber, um, you're not feeding them. And so they're just not going to thrive. So there's really no point in taking a probiotic on top of a diet that doesn't have enough um, fiber in it, um, would you which I think, you know, uh-huh. Would you say that the probiotics are more uh, something that you should almost wait to be prescribed from somebody like yourself? Um, I, well, I, I, I would probably legally say I don't prescribe them, but, <laughs> <Right>. of <course. laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say it's probably best to, you know, at least find a resource that's going to tell you the right strain for whatever it is that you're experiencing at the time. Um, and wait until you have some reason to take them too. If you feel normal, um, you probably don't need them. If you are, haven't, uh, you know, gotten the big rocks out of the way, your diet, your training, your sleep, your stress management, probably not the best environment in which to introduce new microbes. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, probiotics are not um, completely woo. They do have a use. They have some practical applications, but don't just go to the store and buy some any probiotic and just start taking it every day. Um, there are so many other steps that really need to come before that. And, um, you know, the, what I, the spoiler, spoiler alert on what I found, um, and what we found, you know, I, I worked in mice and then subsequent studies in humans, if you eat, you know, a thousand extra calories a day, or, you know, you're in a hypercaloric diet and lots of saturated fat, um, probiotics are not going to prevent you from gaining weight. <laughs> so it's not a fat loss pill. Great. No, it's not. Yeah, I know. I know. Go figure. <laughs> Um, okay. So I, I definitely want to touch on weight regulation and the, mm -hmm. the relation with the gut, but I still want to go down this list of myths first. And I'm, okay. I'm saying myths. I don't mean literal myths because obviously probiotics aren't a myth. You just said it yourself. Yeah. They have practical application, but just things that I think, um, uh, the media has grabbed onto and made mm -hmm. like a household item, which I would say probiotics are now there's like probiotic oh, yeah. drinks, there's probiotic yogurt, there's probiotic uh, like supplements, there's probiotic, uh, snacks and bars and fortified yeah. with, it's like crazy. <laughs> but, um, the next one I had on there was, uh, and I, I don't know if you know a ton about this one, but this <laughs> is something I've seen, uh, or heard from a lot of clients that get kind of scared after, uh, some people were on a few different podcasts. I'm not going to say any specific names, but <laughs> glyphosates, glyphosates <laughs> were this thing where like it came out. Um, and now <laughs> people are very fearful to go to the grocery store and buy vegetables because 
what if there's glyphosates in it? So do you know anything about this? And, and would you say it's something that we actually need to be afraid of? Um, I know enough to say that when we look at the um, lethal doses of these items, um, we base that lethal doses in rodents. And then we, we reduce that by something to the effect of, I can't remember the number, a thousand times. Um, so what we deem to be the upper acceptable daily intake is still hundreds to thousands of magnitudes of times less than what would actually probably be a risk to us. And the amount of uh, herbicide that is being used in crops is extremely dilute in comparison to the amount of crop there. So I think it's important to keep in mind that um, uh, the farmers who are, that, who are planting these crops are paying for the pesticides. They're not going to just use an extraneous amount. Also, it's regulated how much they can use. And then by the time they get to us, whether or not it's something that's got that's been grown uh, uh, conventionally, potentially with you know genetic modification, which is a completely separate issue from use of glyphosate or organic, all of those farming practices use some form of pesticide. The pesticides used in organic farming are not any friendlier than what we would use in conventional farming, and I know this because I've used one of them to shut down the electron transport chain in mitochondria. So, so if, you, if you're not worried about that, you probably don't need to worry about glyphosate because rotenone, which will effectively shut down your mitochondria and cause death in eukaryotic cells, um, is used in organic farming. Glyphosate will not have an effect on, on human cells. Now, that being said, and this, does not, this is not specific to glyphosate, but any pollutant that enters runoff and, and enters the, uh, the environment and accumulates in the water system can certainly have an effect on the microbes present there. So I don't think that we need to look at just a glyphosate and you know, worry about, we're worrying about what it's doing to human health. Um, I think that's just, again, a misappropriation of where our concern should really lie. And overall, we should probably be looking at just general pollution and what are we putting into the waterways because there's mounting evidence now that we're seeing a, a huge uptick in uh, antibiotic resistant genes in the microbes in our waterways. So that's a downstream thing. And I think people really lose sight of the importance of the things that might not affect us for 10 or 20 years, and instead focus on things that aren't even mattering to us right now. Yeah, that's so helpful. Because I think after, I mean, fucking documentaries and all these things mm. that are coming out, people feel like they got to have a garden in, on their porch in the backyard or else they're basically screwed and going to die early. So I'm really glad that you <laughs> kind of shed some light on that. Um, in, in like, I don't know the research behind it, but everything I've told people is it's probably not as serious as you, they are making it seem because again, yeah. like all of this, it's something that they can grab onto and use as fuel to light the fire for people to buy into something and probably make more money because of it. Um, mm -hmm. That made me actually, this wasn't on my list, but it made me think of like artificial sweeteners, which is something that oh. we'll probably get asked about that we should touch on. Um, mm -hmm. Speaking of like the lethal dosages and stuff like that, is that yeah. pretty similar idea? Like the amount that's actually harmful is so great that you would probably drown from consuming fluid before <laughs> you actually die of yes. drinking sucrose? Yes. 
You'd probably die of hyponatremia from drinking that much fluid in a short period of time before you would have an effect of the artificial sweeteners. <laughs> um, now, that being said, so there have been a couple really small human studies that have used the upper limit of um, saccharin and um, sucralose. I know they've looked into aspartame as well. Um, now, in something like two-thirds of the individuals, and there were like seven people, <laughs> they saw some changes in the microbiome. And, you know, we've seen, you know, certainly in rodents, when they're fed um, super physiological doses of these artificial sweeteners, see huge derangements in the microbial colonies and huge derangements in insulin sensitivity. But that's just not replicated in humans. Um, you know, like I said, a couple small studies, one of, one of which showed a little bit of a change in, in the microbial diversity, a little bit of a change in insulin sensitivity um, in some of the individuals. So based on those findings in a couple of the studies, perhaps, you know, 10, 10 to 30% of individuals may see a change in microbial diversity in response to those uh, artificial sweeteners. And uh, maybe 10% might see a change in insulin sensitivity. That being said, we will see changes in microbial diversity in response to many things. And it's not necessarily a, caused by the artificial sweeteners. It could be something that just correlates with changes in overall dietary intake associated with increase in, uh, in the artificial sweetener. Um, and, you know, it changes, it, minor changes in insulin sensitivity that occur acutely don't really tell us about what's happening in, in terms of trends over a long period of time, and also would not create fat loss. And really the best way to reduce insulin resistance is to reduce body fat levels. And when we look at, at large studies, large observational longitudinal studies, um, looking at bigger populations and comparing people who do who take in sugar sweetened beverages versus those who don't, or replace them with a you know a diet version or or even water, they fare much better when they replace rather than taking in the sugar sweetened beverages. We know that those are a huge contributor to um, excess caloric intake. So thinking that you know I'll I'll have the regular soda instead of the diet soda because it's somehow healthier, I think is a bit of of a misunderstanding of the literature. I love that. One of the things on my list was uh, of these things was just like a paleo or elimination diet. So I want mm -hmm. to get your take on that versus mm -hmm. going into these food sensitivity tests, buying a bunch of probiotics, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and to tag onto what we were just talking about, if these artificial sweeteners, be it even a small amount or stevia, anything like that, if those don't really have a negative effect, are those allowed inside of an elimination diet or is that something that people should wipe clean too? Because there are things like, um, I'm sure you're familiar with like AIP um, mm -hmm. protocol and people swear by it because they feel so much better. And I'm like, how can you not feel better? You're literally removing everything. So my goal with asking you this is like, hoping, crossing my fingers, that there's a more <laughs> practical way where people don't have to, I don't want to necessarily say suffer, but just be very, very restrictive and can still probably follow some kind of elimination diet that's a little bit more focused on what they need to eliminate. Yeah. So I approach this in a couple ways. I have sort of a spectrum of recommendations based on the um, preferences of, of the client that I'm working with, um, you know, their eating history and, and um, their trajectory. So um, the most systematic and thorough approach 
that I find to be the most evidence-based because we actually do have plenty of data to show that it's effective would be the low FODMAP elimination, which contains not just the elimination, but also a testing phase and then a reintroduction phase. So FODMAPs specifically are fermentable carbohydrates that are largely fairly gas producing and seem to exacerbate the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. And when we eliminate those FODMAPs for a short period of time, usually that leads to a resolution of symptoms, but it's a very um, uh, restrictive diet and it's not supportive of microbial growth and diversity because it's so lacking in soluble fiber. So you have the testing phase that comes after that. There are different forms of this testing phase. There's not a single best evidence-based version. Um, I have created what I would what I what I would consider to be a quite thorough and evidence-based um, uh, format based on the Monash University um, and and documents from the uh, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics and various lists because there are a bunch of different lists. Some of the low FODMAP recommendations. So taking a systematic approach of testing each specific FODMAP group, titrating up your dose so that you can determine exactly how much you can tolerate. And then the reintroduction is where you start to, you sort of use that as a frame of reference for the groups of FODMAPs that you can tolerate more or less of. And then you reintroduce those foods. So you move back to having a varied diet because you don't want to have a very restrictive diet for the rest of your life. So that I think is probably one of the best um, systematic and evidence-based forms of an elimination diet. Things like carnivore diet, um, AIP, uh, or other things that sometimes people will use, like, you know, they'll use a keto diet or something similar to that, um, or, or Whole30 uh, or Paleo. Those are really, they've become long-term elimination diets. So you never have really a reintroduction phase. And some of them are some of them really just make absolute the the reduction the elimination is just almost everything and then you introduce foods just sort of one at a time haphazardly without any sort of justification for why you're doing it in that order so i find that to be pretty problematic also um there is not a single food that is inflammatory or anti-inflammatory it is the habitual diet and lifestyle that can contribute to um, chronic low-grade inflammation. So I think that's another thing that's important to realize is that we can't just introduce or remove one single food um, and then reduce inflammation or induce inflammation. Um, so yeah, elimination diets certainly have a place, but um, I think they need to be done with someone who knows what they're doing and um, is doing them in a prudent and practical and safe way. Yeah, so a couple questions on that. Number one mm -hmm. is, you you mentioned it's more of an environmental thing that creates this inflammation. Is mm -hmm. that is it more of a like a how do I say this? The way you are living, the rest of your diet, stress, things like that creates an inability to properly digest or break down these foods, and that's what's causing the inflammation. Or is it literally just two separate things? And people are doing elimination diets, hoping for a a mm -hmm. result that's just never going to happen because their lifestyle is a certain way. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so it's not that we're unable to digest those foods. We are, well, let me, let me backpedal on that. There are some foods that we would never be able to digest because we don't produce the enzymes to digest them. We haven't evolved to do that. So fiber 
um, is one thing that we don't have the digestive enzymes to break down. So the links between the individual monosaccharides, we don't have the enzymes to break those. So fiber passes undigested all the way through our digestive tract to our large intestine, and that's where it's fermented by the bacteria. And that's how it's supposed to be. There's actually that's, there's nothing deranged about that process. So yeah, there are some things that we do not digest because we're not supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the food for which we have digestive enzymes will still digest and absorb that food. Inflammation is a really, it's an umbrella term. We can have acute inflammation. We can have chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation is normal. It allows us to fight off pathogens. It allows us to recover from exercise. Um, it allows us to adapt to perturbations from our environment. So we need to have acute inflammation. When we look at chronic inflammation, um, that is existing at, at lower levels than what we would see acutely. Um, and really, you know, there are probably a bunch of different definitions for this. When I was looking at inflammation associated with high fat feeding and obesity, um, we were looking at just really one section of it. We were looking at parts of the innate immune system. So that's something that will amount an immune response without having to be educated a first time by a pathogen. And so there are some compounds that exit the gut. They come from the bacteria, they exit the gut, and they bind to specific receptors. And that causes the release of chemicals that will cause more inflammation. So it sort of becomes a cyclical thing. And, and that's associated with insulin resistance. Um, and, you know, certainly we've looked at there are some links to, you know, perhaps things coming from the gut and autoimmune diseases as well. So just an overall dysregulation of the immune system. So it becomes a little bit hyperactive. But does, does, inflammation, you know, then prevent weight loss? Arguably, no. And in fact, one of the best ways to reduce inflammatory markers and reduce that cascade is to reduce body fat. There's evidence that some of the reasons that we have that chronic elevated inflammation is that some of these chemical messengers that induce it are reduced by fat cells that have become too large. And that insulin resistance can actually be a protective mechanism because it prevents glucose uptake where we already have an excess of glucose and it's going to be converted to fat. Insulin resistance is protective to the cells, um, but not to the whole organism. Got it. Okay. That's very helpful. And I'm, I like the way you took it with uh, insulin resistance because I think a lot of people try to manipulate their diet in so many ways to... Uh, not necessarily prevent, but to fix this issue. I, I say fix mm -hmm. lightly, but um, in, in reality, it's like, we just need to get healthy. We need to lose yes. weight. We need to get fit and we need to train. Um, yeah. So I like the way you approach that. And I think it's very practical. Um, that that's kind of sums up everything I had for the myth busting. Um, awesome. Again, quote unquote, myth busting, just like the list <laughs> of like things I really wanted you to just like lay uh, the nail in the coffin. Um, but I definitely want to touch on a few different aspects of the body and the systems in our body that the gut actually influences. As we know, mm. the gut is gut health is becoming more and more popular and they call it the second brain and it affects yes. everything yeah. basically in our body, which I understand is true, but I'm curious as to what extent that is uh, true and what we should worry about. So the first one would be the hormonal system. How much of an influence is the gut in general on our hormonal system? You know, the internet would have you believe that we know the answer to this question, <laughs> but we do not. 
<laughs> so <laughs> I find it really hilarious that people are like, oh, we'll fix your gut. We'll fix your hormones. And it's like, okay, A, you're probably not an endocrinologist and perhaps not even a gastroenterologist. <laughs> um, and B, we just don't know enough yet. Um, there, even the stuff that we've looked at, you know, to some extent in rodents, like there, um, I've seen some things on like leptin and ghrelin, um, things on circadian rhythm dysfunction in rodents. We just haven't recapitulated those in humans yet, even though we've tried in some cases. You know, we've even um, gone so far as to, you know, in a fecal transplant when rodents, that was able to reduce body fat in rodents or induce obesity in rodents. Pilot study in humans showed that that wasn't the case. Um, so yeah, we really just don't know yet. We know that those microbes can metabolize um, uh, hormones. We know that there we have an uh, we have a microbiome. We have an estrobilome of of estrogen metabolism. We know that there are um, or we don't know. We we suspect that there's a link between the microbiome and um, breast cancer risk. But there are a lot of overstated opinions and a lot of, I think, fear-based um, postulations about what the microbiome might be doing to hormones and what things like birth control might be doing to the microbiome. And um, you know, there's there's just really a problem of the of the absence of evidence. And I think in some cases there's also evidence of absence, but um, you know, people kind of take things out of context, uh, look at, you know, values that might change, like plasma values that change. And, you know, it might be a significant change in terms of the numbers, but it's still within normal clinical ranges. So does it really matter then? You know, I think I'm a big proponent of asking like, okay, so what? Um, and a lot of people aren't, aren't, don't seem to be asking that. They're just like, oh, this seems really serious. And it's like, well, but in the big picture, is it really? Uh, um, so yeah, so hormones, we just don't know yet. I think the problem, and this is probably one of my biggest pet peeves with the industry as a whole, is that a lot of, I wouldn't say leaders, um, uh, a lot of coaches, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, brand initiators lead with fear. And I mm -hmm. think that's one of the biggest issues. Um, gut is one of those. Uh, hormones in general was one of those. Metabolic adaptation was one of those. Mm. Thyroid dysfunction was one of yes. those. And it just like goes on joint health is even to an extent like one of those, like it just, it goes every, everywhere you can trigger somebody's pain point. I think people take advantage of it. Um, and it's a big issue. And again, that's why like, I, again, I was like super excited when we first started talking because I'm like, <laughs> you're one of the people standing up for that in the gut realm. And I think it's really important. Um, and, and just for the listener, like I'm not a hormone expert by any means, but what I would say after talking to a lot of people, working with a lot of people is like, generally all the stuff we're talking about kind of indirectly affects everything else as a whole. Mm -hmm. If you just eat real food, you get sleep, you train, you practice healthy habits that you know are, are the right thing to do, but they're not a sexy hack. Like if you just do those things, most of this stuff is probably going to clear up over time. Um, it's just not sexy or fast or quick fix. And that's where people are like, tune you out. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like, so I, I'm not, I'm, I don't argue that, you know, some individuals may have a harder time losing weight. 100%. If you have, yeah, you know, and, and like there are definitely, you know, PCOS and hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. Yes, it will be more challenging for you to achieve, to achieve an energy deficit if you have one of those conditions that's not being regulated by medication in some way. Absolutely. 
But does that mean that an energy deficit does not work for you? No. Bingo. I, I love the, I've said this multiple times too. Um, I think more people need to understand that entire thought process um, because they assume that because they have Hashimoto's or any of these other things that we're talking about, an energy deficit doesn't apply to them. And it's like, well, I understand okay. calories in versus calories out, but I have this. And it's like, well, no, that just makes it harder for you to achieve a calorie deficit, right? And that's yeah. where the issue becomes. Um, speaking of this kind of uh, in general and people having like stubborn uh, weight loss and stuff like that, mm -hmm. Is there any research that proves, um, and this might be more correlation or, or anecdotal that, uh, just in your experience, women tend to have more hormone and or gut issues in general than men? Um, I can't speak to whether they have more hormone issues, but yes, more gut issues. So women are more likely to experience irritable bowel syndrome and they're more likely to experience exercise-induced gastric distress. Um, so that is actually not made up. That's for real. Do you, do you know, as, is there any evidence that shows why? And the reason I ask that is because I've had, uh, somebody on the opposite end, uh, say basically there are hormone specialists, but not a gut health specialist. So they can talk on <laughs> hormones and they kind of yeah. said the same thing. And that's why, like in my experience, things like reverse diet or the, metabolic adaptation just from a sense, like it's going to happen to everybody, no matter what, if you put yourself mm. in, on a serious cut, but it happens more severely to women in my experience. Reverse diets can be a little bit more difficult for women. Um, I get more stubborn weight loss situations with women. Um, and I've seen more women have gut health issues in my experience. And, and is there anything to prove why, or is it really just luck of the draw? Uh, well, there are some, there are some species of bacteria that seem to correlate more tightly with males than females. Um, so there are certainly some, you know, differences in, in microbial diversity. Um, but that's, again, one thing that we don't really know why. Uh, I would say, you know, if I had to wager a bet, I would say a lot of it probably has to do with chronic dieting in females, much mm. more prevalent than it is in males. So if you have a female who is chronically yo-yo dieting and she is consistently um, either maintaining very low caloric intake and then low meat levels, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So she's in energy balance at very low energy intake, um, not uh, you know training rigorously, not doing things that are supportive of lean body mass, and then she goes into chronic dieting many times throughout the year. She's then losing a little bit of lean mass. There's evidence that the regain after a weight loss phase like that, if it's really rapid, can um, uh, prioritize fat regain. And so even though she is feeling restricted and sort of chronically dieting, as she yo-yos back and forth, she's losing a little bit more lean mass and gaining a little bit more fat mass as she goes. And so she has an overall um, you know, reductions in, in the quality of body composition. And that's actually been shown the longer that female, there was, a, I think it might've been in competitive gymnasts or dancers. Um, the length of time in a caloric deficit was actually associated with, with reductions in body composition in terms of, you know, increased fat mass and reductions in lean mass. So I'm sure that that's part of it. Um, so they may have a lower than anticipated, you know, metabolic rate at a given weight after a, after long-term weight loss. Um, that being said, you know, the, the relative uh, contribution of adaptive thermogenesis in individuals seems to be pretty low. 
uh, in terms of changing metabolic, uh, changing uh, uh, total daily energy expenditure. So if you're looking at maybe a change of about 100 or so calories per day, that's pretty small compared to what's probably more of a change in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So as our energy intake falls, so does our energy expenditure. So we just don't fidget as much, you know, and even if you're doing something super hard in the gym for like an hour a day, you're sleeping another eight hours. Now you've got, you know, 13 or 14, that what are you doing? Maybe you're at work and then sitting the rest of the time. So I think that probably plays a, a much greater role than the microbiome could. Um, you know, that, the, yeah, you can, there, there's a predisposition depending on the, the type of microbes present, but that's just not really going to be a causative factor. So it's more of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of a correlation versus a causation. Yes, yes. women might have more gut health issues, but it's more likely because of all these things. This is actually mm -hmm. really good because uh, we've, like the last probably three or four months, we've been really pushing out a lot of content for maintenance phases and mm. uh, like women going through like lean gain phases and, and yes. we don't tell them like mass up and bulk up but like do it properly and, and one of our coaches um, she's a female gained 11 pounds on purpose mm -hmm. she looks really good she did it on purpose but like we're using that as like a case study proof of like you can do this right and she feels better and like these are there are certain yeah. phases um, but going back to the uh, male versus female micro uh, biome you're mm -hmm. saying that the probiotics specifically for men and women are a good thing. We should buy those. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had to throw oh, that Oh yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Um, no, you know what I, <laughs> you know, what's so funny is I think a lot of those are, are based on the fact that like females have, we have a vaginal microbiome, which obviously um, males who are gender male, um, don't have a vaginal microbiome. Right. And so we'll have differences there. And the vaginal microbiome is largely um, dominated by lactobacilli. So that's usually the female specific probiotics, because of course I'm curious. I'm like, oh, it's a bunch of lactobacilli. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it female versus male specific. And in fact, really the only strain that I can recall being significantly different, is, uh, species rather, uh, is this species? I can't remember if it's a genus or species, but lactobacillus which is not something that you even like find in a probiotic anywhere. Um, but so, <laughs> yeah, so um, there's really no evidence for, you know, needing a male versus female uh, probiotic. I heard you talk about it on another podcast and I always thought those, I always think most supplements that are like men versus women are kind of funny. So I had to throw that mm -hmm. out there. Um, yeah. I have a, I have two more main questions for you. Do you have yeah. enough time to do? Okay, oh cool. yeah. Yeah. Um, so the first one being, uh, kind of going on this idea of like the gut affecting other things in the body, like just mm -hmm. in general, I know this is like casting a huge net, but weight, <laughs> weight management in general, like, is there any links that we can tie the gut to, uh, metabolism, um, mm. possibly, uh, PCOS or insulin resistance or anything like that, that could potentially cause issues with weight management, um, anything related to basically fat loss in general. Um, and the reason I want to ask this is because a, if there's any way that we can, it can be applicable to people to help them and B, if there's not as much as people think they can stop expecting a probiotic or a paleo diet or a whole 30 elimination, something to help them lose weight. Um, it's not a fat loss protocol kind of thing. Right, right. So yes. And I love this question. Um, so I will preface this by saying there are things that you can do that would both support microbial diversity and perhaps enhance weight loss. Things like eating vegetables at each meal and making sure that you're getting enough fiber and engaging in regular physical activity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, now, in terms of actual, you know, research on the link between the gut and obesity. So this um, was established back in, I can't remember if it was 2006 or 2009, um, but the, the Gordon Lab did some really incredible, Gordon Turnbaugh as well, and Patrice Connie, if you want to look up some people who did some great um, research. Uh, they established a link between the gut microbiome and uh, predispos predisposition to obesity. So they took mice that did not have gut bacteria and they gave them fecal transplants from individuals who are either lean or obese. The mice who received lean transplants stayed lean. The mice who received the transplant from individuals with obesity then became obese, either through increased energy intake, no surprise, or increased energy harvesting. So that means that there were some microbes in the feces that actually were able to take uh, plant matter from the diet, which was undigestible to us, and process it to make short-chain fatty acids, which are absorbable by us. So they were able to then extract more energy. So that means that potentially, if you're counting for uh, 2,000 calories in your diet, you may actually be absorbing something like 2,200. It's not enough that it would really cause, you know, the development of obesity most likely over time, but it is enough that perhaps you need to be a little bit more conservative with your tracking if you find that your numbers just don't seem to be adding up, that perhaps your microbiome is a little bit better at harvesting energy from the diet. Likewise. There are um, some bacteria that produce that uh, compound that I mentioned earlier. It's called uh, lipopolysaccharide or L that can actually exit the gut and enter circulation. And if it binds to a receptor on skeletal muscle, um, that has been associated with insulin resistance and low-grade inflammation. And so it's just one of the ways in which the microbiome is linked to metabolic dysregulation and that low-grade inflammation. So the Connie lab did some really interesting work looking at humans feeding them high-fat meals. They would do a high-fat meal challenge and then measure circulating plasma LPS or endotoxin. And they found that in individuals who were eating uh, these high-fat meals, they had really elevated plasma endotoxin levels. And years later, um, it came to light that individuals with obesity and or type 2 diabetes also tend to have higher levels of, of LPS, and also higher levels of the receptor to which it can bind. So there seems to be an overall inflammatory environment there. We just aren't really sure about what is coming first, the chicken or the egg. You know, what is coming first? Is it that we're eating to the point of obesity? And then, you know, we have increased intestinal permeability, and so the LPS can, can leach out? Or is it something that, you know, we're sort of born with this predisposition and then you know, a bunch of lifestyle factors come together to, to culminate into this, you know, obesogenic inflammatory state. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a link, but it's um, one that, that, you know, we can't say, oh, blame it on the gut. It's your gut health. You have to fix or heal your gut before you can lose weight. Um, you still would need an energy deficit. It's just that maybe it's not exactly the numbers that you had calculated initially. Um, and, you know, maybe you have to be a little bit more conservative than the person who weighs the same as you and does the same thing as you, but has um, a different, you know, profile of gut bacteria. I love, I love how everything, I say I, I love, but I also hate that because <laughs> I think, I think people, like we always talk about, uh, 
a lot of people do in the evidence-based community, but like talk about kind of in general, it kind of always comes back down to calories and people get frustrated and I want them to know like, Hey, like we wish that there was some cool <laughs> trick yes. that made that not true as well. It's not just you. Yes. Um, because every time I hear it, I'm like, Oh well, shit, it's calories again. And then my head, yeah. I'm like, man, I wish it was just like, no, no, no. Take this strain of this or <laughs> eat it. And it's like, it's just never that way. Um, nope. I love that answer. So the last thing on here was uh, the guts roll with, I wrote brain, but I, I guess I, what I mean is brain, mood, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, stress, um, even the nervous system in general, um, yeah. because I think that it's all kind of intertwined, but it applies to so many factors. If your nervous system is just damaged in any way, performance is going to be an issue no matter what your goal is. Um, mm-hmm. If you can't focus at work because your cognition is impaired, due to gut health, like that's an issue. Um, Obviously mood, uh, stress, anxiety, depression, those things, none of us want that. Um, And I think there's a lot coming out. I think you kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, You just briefly said it, but there's a lot of people kind of grabbing onto this idea of, and I don't know if there was a study that kind of promoted this idea, but fix your gut and remove depression kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's as simple as that, but, um, and I'm obviously not a therapist, so this is not, advice to anybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I just want to kind of, uh, what role does the gut play on that neurological component? Um, again, this is an area that we're still exploring. Um, now there's strong evidence that there's bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut via the vagus nerve. So that means that the brain can communicate to the gut and vice versa through this nerve that puts out about 75% of our parasympathetic tone. That's the branch of the nervous system that's all about um, digesting food, calming us down, and things like that. It's the rest and digest aspect. So in mice who've had vagotomy, that vagus nerve is cut, um, they don't see the same um, effects of of the microbiome. So they are given a probiotic, and then with or without vagotomy, it seems that their, their behavior doesn't change with the vagotomy. So there is definitely communication, at least in mice, uh, from the gut to the brain and arguably also in humans. So it can be central. And it can also be potentially that there are peripheral communication uh, pathways via um, chemical messengers that are produced by the bacteria and then in some cases can pass through the blood-brain barrier and impact the brain in some way. Uh, that being said, serotonin is not one of those. That's one that people bring up a lot. We have gut-derived serotonin. It plays a very important role in regulating gastric motility, but it doesn't pass the blood-brain barrier, so not going to be um, modulating mood. There are precursors to serotonin that could potentially pass the blood-brain barrier, but again, not directly serotonin. Um, now, in terms of you know the, the microbiome's effect on mood, the best that we have right now is evidence that mood disorders correlate with some form of dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is just an unfavorable relative abundance of species. That means that we could have too many pathogenic or too few beneficial. Uh, the problem is that uh, based on you know, differences in methodologies between studies, differences in, in participants, we don't have a clear picture for what dysbiosis looks like in individuals with mood disorder. And the greatest variability that we see between individuals is just based on being individuals. There's no, it's just the sum of you as a person. You will have a different microbial fingerprint than another person 
just because of a bunch of different factors, your age, your gender, your ethnicity, your geographic location, your habitual diet, your physical activity. So it makes perfect sense that we can't say like, oh, there's this one profile, this one crazy trick, this one species of bacteria that we can say, you know, causes depression or something. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it looks like the best ways that to, to improve mood disorders is really the non-probiotic routes, the lifestyle routes. And could that also modulate the gut? Most likely because diet and physical activity both modulate microbial communities in the gut. So sure, is that the cause for the improvement in mood? We don't know. We have, we have no way so far being able to test that. When we transplant um, uh, species from individuals who, who have a mood disorder into rodents or we transplant between rodents that have different personalities, we do see some personality changes in the rodents but they're not consistent every time. So that's as close as we can get to a potential causative role. Um, but I don't think that we need to just like write it off completely because obviously all of the things that are good for microbial diversity are also good for human health. And microbial diversity is widely recognized as being correlated with a bunch of different health benefits. So maybe it's just two things happening at the same time. Maybe there's a causative effect there. Um, but either way, I would say we still want to do those things. It's just that we can't necessarily hinge everything on the gut microbiome. I love it. I, I, something, I mean, two things came up to me. One's kind of funny and mm -hmm. one's important for people to hear. The important thing for people to hear is that I know you don't like the term expert, but I can't, <laughs> I can't think of a better word for it right now. <laughs> if you look at any expert or just great coach, great leader, great uh, thought provoker, educator, um, maybe that's the best word, a great educator in any one field they never speak in absolutes. They are very open to discussion. They usually say it depends quite a bit. Um, and people get frustrated with how many times I, I answer questions. Well, it depends. <laughs> I answer it eight different ways. But I think it's really important for people to hear because there are no absolute, there are no for sure right. things. Um, anybody who tells you, especially in gut health, because it's so, compared to most things, it's so new in science. Mm -hmm. Um, anybody who tells you like this is the way or the gut does this exact thing, I think is on thin ice because I just don't, I think in most scenarios we have to keep an open mind. Um, yeah. the, the funny thing that came to mind, um, I, so this is a random story to share with you in high school, <laughs> I was in a video class and the teacher, uh, went through cancer, went through chemo and mm. came back and he survived and he's, I mean, still teaching there as far as I know, but he had a, a bone marrow transplant, uh, oh. from a female and he, would get really emotional in class. Like he would, I remember him crying multiple times after this whole thing happened, just like randomly of like how proud he was and like random stuff. And he used to always say, he's like, Oh, there's that female bone marrow again. He would like <laughs> truly believe that the transplant created more of an emotional side for him. He was more sensitive and he was more soft hearted. He would say, and it was so funny, but I couldn't debunk him at the time because I was in high school. I didn't know any of this shit, but, yeah. um, and who knows? I mean, could be causation, could be correlation, but it was just, that, that's the first thing that came to mind when you brought up the rats. Um, yes. all right. Anyway, uh, that is all I have today. Uh, we're over normal time. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I, I can't tell you how valuable this is going to be for the listeners because I get questions about this stuff all the time. And you really did. Like, um, I say this when somebody crushes the podcast, I wish you had a mic to just drop because you just, <laughs> you killed it. Um, and I appreciate your time so much before you go. Can you tell the listeners, uh, what you're putting out for content, where to find you, how to reach you, if they want to consult, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am Vitamin PhD on Instagram and Facebook. 
If you want to read the um, introduction to gut health, we have a chapter in the RP Diet Book 2.0 that we released um, not too long ago, last year, late last year. I am writing a gut health, an, an all-inclusive um, gut health book. I'm actually calling it the Gut Microbiome Science Book because um, I like that term a little bit more than gut health, um, just in how it's used. And um, so feel free to DM me or you can shoot me an email, vitaminphdnutrition at gmail.com. If you are interested in doing any consults, um, you can shoot me an email, uh, gabrielle at renaissanceperiodization.com if you're interested in working with me through RP. And uh, keep a lookout on RP's website for all the seminars because I pretty much travel around the world and around the country to speak about this stuff and I love to meet people. Love it. I'll put a link to all that in the show notes. Highly recommend RP Diet too. Um, got that from my team. I'm part of RP Plus. So I absorb all the, I'm like literally there for the webinars. I love that kind of shit. So um, yes. especially once I had my daughter, I couldn't travel as much. I was like, just give me all the webinars, but I will link all that in the show notes. Um, thank you. Once again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.